Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20, these are the words of God. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil." The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Among Paul's final instructions to the church in Rome, uh, he addresses briefly and yet profoundly uh, the ideas of unity and the ideas of division in the church. His main concern is uh, is with those who are causing division, those who are sowing seeds of discord, And, in particular, division over sound doctrine. Uh, I'll just take a quick second to say this, that a divisive person is a divisive person is a divisive person. So, uh, Paul would later on tell Titus, and we'll see a little bit of that today, he would tell other writers, uh, he would speak to other parts of the church, uh, words about divisive people in general. But in Romans, he is talking in particular about those who would divide over what is known and understood to be sound doctrine. These are, these are important matters for us to be in agreement on. And, and so to, um, to sow seeds of discord in this particular vein is quite, uh, quite bad. And what we're going to see today is, uh, is, um, a lot of Paul's, we're going to see all of Scripture, but we're going to see what we uh, are to understand about divisive people. It's very, it's very important. So have you ever heard the phrase that something is pregnant with meaning? You ever heard that phrase, something is pregnant with meaning? The four verses that we're, we're dealing with today, 17 through 20, are, are uh, pregnant with meaning. What Paul has to say here is informed by all the rest of Scripture. Everything else that he has taught, everything else that he has learned himself. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a very well-educated Jewish man. And so he understands a lot about unity and division because he studied what God says about unity and division. And hopefully each and every one of us today will walk away learning a little bit more uh, about the importance of this idea. As we start, though, I want you to know something and that is that I have the same goal today that the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago. Go to verse 19 with me for a second. Verse 19 says, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. I, I want you to know, I, am, I just get excited every Sunday about where our church is and where our church is going, about the life that is in our church, about the maturity that's in our church, about the growth that's in our church. Paul said the exact same words to the Romans. I want you to know, I've seen your obedience. I see you striving after Jesus. I see what's happening, and way to go, commend it. But look what he says next. He says this, he says, but... There's always, uh, <laughs> there's always a but inside of this. And he says, but I, I don't want you to be uninformed, okay? But uh, I want you to be 
wise in what is good, underline this in your Bible, wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In other words, the Apostle Paul, his goal and mine today is not to talk to you about something you're doing wrong necessarily. So I want you to hear that before we jump into this because I'm actually not dealing uh, with this. I'm, I'm trying to help us as a church to guard against division. So this isn't about something that we or you are doing wrong necessarily. As a church, I can say it with a great deal of confidence that we all desire to live godly lives. Is that true? We all desire to live godly lives. Now, we may not always know how to do this. Can I get an Amen. We may not always know how to do this, but that, com- that becomes an issue of maturity and understanding rather than some pastor and teacher's view of uh, overt stubbornness or outright rebellion. Like, like the church is never progressing and is always stuck in this horrible, sinful uh, pattern. Do we still sin, church? Yeah, anybody who says no is sinning there. So the, the point, though, is that we, obviously, we understand that we're still sinning, but what we're dealing with here is, is, is an idea of growth and understanding, not stubbornness or rebellion. Like Paul, I hope today's message will help us to be wise in what is good and to be innocent in what is evil. And as we walk through these verses, 17 through 20, we're going to use them as a, as a kind of outline for the bigger issues of unity and division. So Without further ado, let's just jump right into verse 17. And, and I encourage you to underline things. I encourage you to write down notes for this. It'll help you. There's going to be a lot of uh, scriptures that kind of float in from the outside. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. The term urge in Greek here is pronounced parakaleo, and it means to demand earnestly or to demand pressingly. Clearly, when Paul says, I urge you, brethren, the issue of division is important to him. Paul only uses this term four times throughout the entire letter to the Romans, and each one of those times represents what I would call a watershed moment, a very important milestone or point that Paul needs to make, at least doctrinally. In Romans 12.1, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, in view of mercy, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. I don't think any of us need to understand why he wants to urge us to that. That is an important idea. In the Christian life, you are not saved by grace through faith in order to wait for Jesus to return. And, and, and make you better someday. You are saved by grace through faith. You have been re- remade and God has called us to holiness and righteousness and godliness. We have been saved from sin and death, but we have been saved to life and godliness. This is an important idea. Romans 12, 8, when the Apostle Paul says that the one who has the gift of exhortation in the church should use it, the word exhort means to urge. And so the one who has the gift to urge people, to call people to a higher standard of living, to encourage them to take the hill for God's kingdom or whatever it might be, those people are needed in the church. And I would argue that they're needed more and more in today's world than they ever have been before. So Paul says, I, I urge you uh, to exhort. I want you to urge people if you have that gift. Romans 15.30, when Paul asks the saints to strive together with him in prayer as he goes on his continued missions, he actually urges them to pray with him. 
I can't tell you how serious this is for me as a pastor. Uh, For us as a leadership team, we want you to be praying for us and with us for the things that God is doing. Amen? Amen? We need those prayers. We do believe that God, the power source behind those prayers, is doing something. We believe that he's listening to his people. So I want to urge you towards those kinds of things. And then, of course, last but not least is Romans 16, 17. And here again, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. There are two things, note takers, there are two things that Paul is urging these Christians to do. We have to see both of them or we're going to miss the point and we're not going to be ready for what is coming if we don't do as Paul says. The first is this, keep your eye on those who cause dissension. Keep your eye on those who cause dissension. How many of you have ever known somebody or met somebody who's just a divisive person? And how many of you look at them with that kind of stink eye when they come around? You know what I'm talking about. We're like, uh, here we go. Well, you need to do that. That's number one. But don't miss the rest of the verse. We have to keep an eye on those who cause dissension. And he urges us to turn away from them. So I know that the order goes Keep your eye on them and then turn away. But the reality of Paul's communication here is that he wants you to turn away from divisive people and he always wants you to to keep an eye on them. Why? Because a divisive person is a divisive person is a divisive person. They will creep back in and create problems. So you have to set up that, as a for modern language, you have to set up that boundary. This is an important boundary for us to set up in the church. Paul doesn't just leave us at watching them. Instead, he turns from this to telling us to uh, cast them out and then watch them. But why? Why? I know what many of you are thinking. You're like, aren't we supposed to be Christians? Aren't we supposed to love? Hang in till the end. I'll show you where this, where this is not a contradiction. I'll show you what it is. But why are we supposed to uh, not be with the divisive person, and keep an eye on them. Who are they? Who are these people? Well, check this out. The term dissension, this is where terms matter and definitions really matter. The term dissension means discord that splits a group. That's the lexical definition of this. So somebody who is a dissenting person is somebody who uh, presents discord that actually splits a church. How many of you have ever been a part of a church that has undergone a split? right? Not, notwithstanding this church, right? But we've gone through those things, and people have gone through that. That is what we're talking about here. Those who cause division among the group. And the word hindrance literally translates a cause for stumbling. A cause for stumbling. You need to, you need to remember these definitions. We're going to come back to them. So keep in mind that splitting a group in, in Romans, splitting a group in the Roman context and causing someone to stumble has everything to do with doctrinal issues. Again, people cause division in many areas and they all need to be taken into account. There are churches that divide over the carpet color. (laughs) There are churches who divide over the style of worship. There are churches who, who divide over all kinds of things. And that's a pity 
It's really a pity. So division happens, but in particular, we're talking about teaching. We're talking about doctrine. Remember what Paul said, those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Do you know what that, what that phrase means, contrary to the teaching which you learned, or what it implies? It implies that there is a sound teaching to be contrary against. <laughs> I think this is such an important thing. Most in the church today seem to live under this kind of auspice that says, throw your hands up, everybody's disagreed for thousands of years, we can never know what is true, we will never solve all these issues. True, true enough, there are issues that we will never solve. Why? Because the Bible tells, tells us that we look through a glass dimly, or through in a mirror dimly. But make no mistake, there are absolutes when it comes to the Christian faith. And these issues are non-negotiable. It is what makes us Christians versus Muslims, Christian versus Mormon, Christian versus Jehovah's Witness. It's what makes us distinct in this. And so Paul is actually urging us to be very leery and to set aside those who teach against sound teaching or sound doctrine, those who present contrary teaching. So who are they? That's what we're trying to answer. Number one, they are a people who don't agree with sound doctrine. Write it down. These people, these divisive people are a people who don't agree with sound doctrine. Number two, they're willing to split the church over their foolishness. They're willing to split the church over it. Number three, the doctrines they espouse cause people to stumble. And another piece that we're going to see here in a second is they actually, uh, they actually promote a doctrine that does not call the church to godliness and holiness. Okay, so just stick with me on this. Whether, whether that stumbling is in faith like the Judaizers had done with the Apostle Paul in the first century church, or whether it's to do with godliness uh, as we move throughout the church today, we've got to recognize people who do not promote godliness and do not promote sound teaching are a problem. The scripture tells us abundantly. Verse eight, 18 goes on. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. Look at what it goes on to say. And by their smooth and flattering speech, that, by the way, this is the divisive person, not a used car salesman. By their smooth and flattering speech, they, de they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Number four, they don't belong to Jesus. It's really hard for us to actually say that in the modern church today. Do you know that? It's hard for us to say Sorry, your life does not accord with sound doctrine. You do not look like Jesus does. You are an unbeliever. You know what we like to do? We like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. But let me caution you on something, church. Please don't give your family and friends the benefit of the doubt that sends them to hell. Tell them the truth. If they don't look like Jesus, they aren't of Jesus. If they don't act like Jesus, or teach what Jesus teaches, they are not of Jesus. I, I, know, I know how hard this is because our culture is, is a culture of no absolutes. You can't be so sure. You can't take such a stance. I absolutely can and I will every day. You have to take that stance. You must do that. Should you be patient with somebody who might be immature? Of course you should. Of course you should. 
Should we have greater fellowship um, with people so that we can actually know whether or not they really are followers of Jesus? Yes, we should. Yes, we should. That's one of the great problems with this uh, kind of satellite-based world that we live in. Everybody's on their computers. Everybody's distant. We go to our homes. We pop the garage door. We pull in. We shut it, and we never talk to our neighbors, except for online. You know you can walk next door, right? The air, it's breathable. We're not on Mars. We can do these kinds of things. I know that that's crazy, but we need more fellowship. And in that fellowship, this is actually what G.K. Chesterton talked about uh, in his book, Heretics. The problem, why we are not uh, fond of our neighbor who God chooses for us, and why we only surround ourselves with friends that we choose for ourselves is because our neighbor is really interested in our life and they can call out our hypocrisy. I hate neighbors. <laughs> Love them. That's what you're supposed to do. So we need greater fellowship. Do we need to look at somebody's life and be patient with them? Absolutely. But there are, there are truths. There are absolutes when it comes to somebody following after Jesus. We can know whether or not someone is truly a follower. I mean, let me end this little uh, rabbit trail or this little soapbox moment with this. When your family members are dying, when your family members are dying, that is not the time for you to give them the benefit of the doubt. You have this bit of time to see that they would be with you in eternity. And you know what we often do? For the sake of human comfort, we say, gosh, I don't want to burden them with this. So you'd rather burden them with hell? I'm confused. I'm confused, church. We need to be a people who are truthful. We need to be a people who, who see things for what they are. And we need, lovingly, of course, we need to speak that truth into the lives of those around us. So number four, they don't belong to Jesus. It's a fact. We can put it on a chart somewhere and say this is true. They are slaves of their own appetites. I suppose we could add to that list that they're smooth talkers and deceivers, but for the sake of time, we'll just keep moving. Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 speak to this kind of individual. Titus chapter 3, 10 and 11. Reject a factious man. That doesn't just mean men. There's factious women too, right? But reject a factious man. You know what that word factious actually translates? In the King James, the King James gets it right. It renders it perfect. Heretic. Heretic. This is the right understanding of a heretic. I'll explain it in just a second. Reject a factious man, a heretic, after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Everybody else is squirming right now. They're like, whoa, this is some pretty brutal stuff. This is the loving Apostle Paul speaking, just so you know. Right? This is first century Christianity who understood really what Jesus was talking about by love, which is to tell people the truth, right? So Paul says that they're heretics, they're perverted, and they're sinning. A heretic, the difference uh, in a heretic and somebody who simply holds an unorthodox view, hear me church, we live in a hypersensitive culture in every area, and in the church it's no better, so that when somebody disagrees with you, the very first thing that happens is we stamp them with the label heretic, we put that scarlet letter on them, and we send them away from our church. A heretic is not somebody who holds an unorthodox view. 
A heretic is a person who holds an unorthodox view and causes dissension over that unorthodox view. Every single one of us at one point in our life, and maybe even now, held to or holds to unorthodox views. You know what that is? That's, that's an issue of immaturity. <laughs> that's an issue of growth, an issue of understanding. It's not an issue of being a divisive person who doesn't belong to Jesus. Make sure you understand this. Our kids come to us with all kinds of strange ideas, and they are not rooted fully in a biblical idea. So they'll say, well, maybe God's this way. And I'm like, okay, time out. Maybe he's not. (laughs) As a matter of fact, he isn't, and here's why. Because the Bible says this. But I don't label my children heretics and send them out of my house. Some days, maybe. But I, I... Go to the woodshed right now. So I I just want you to understand that there's a difference between holding an unorthodox view because of ignorance and being a divisive person, as Titus tells us. The second identifier of that person in Titus is that they are perverted. But obviously, this is not what we think with that word perversion in a sexual connotation. These people are perverting the word of God or the truth of God. So make sure you understand that. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writes uh, to his young son in the faith something about this kind of person as well. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. You should try saying that to somebody sometime. It's just, I just want to see how that works. Hey, I just want you to know you're conceited and you don't understand a thing. It probably won't win you friends. But here, let me, let me identify two really important things, okay? Those who differ in doctrine, they don't agree with sound words. How does the Apostle Paul define sound words? Look what he says here. He says, those teachings which accord or those sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus said it, we believe it. Done. If Jesus said it, we believe it. Case closed, church. That's one point of division. There are things that Jesus says we don't like. Tough. We submit. We trust him. Why? He's the Lord of glory, right? And then look at that second piece. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Now, this is a big one for me. This is a big one for me because there are groups in the church today that would promote the idea that says we're sinners, we are, we're saved by grace, we are, we're saints, we are, but there are groups in the church that say you're a horrible, miserable, wretched sinner and you will never ever be anything other than that. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. This, this lies. This lies. It's actually this doctrine that they're fighting against. Against sound doctrine which accords with godliness. We've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen, church? You have been given it. You're not waiting for it. There is no temptation that you face that you cannot overcome. Did you know that? And guess why? Because Jesus provided an out. 
You know what happens when you succumb to temptation? You be stupid. <laughs> you are sinning. You have chosen to reject God. You have chosen to say, I know what you said. I know what I can do, but no. Anybody in here have children under seven? Raise your hand. Can I get some amens about this, right? They come out the womb, sinners, and they don't seem to get out of it, ever, <laughs> right? It's unbelievable how these children do this. But our job as Christian parents is to show them the ways of the Lord, to see them come to saving faith in Jesus, and then to teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. Amen? That's our job. That's what this talks about. So one of these false doctrines, one of these divisive people or, or the people that advocate a different doctrine, they're advocating a doctrine that does not conform to godliness. You're incapable. You are not incapable. The Spirit of God rests in you. You just made me happy. Keep it going. You just make me happy. Woo! I'm going to get pumped up here in a second. Okay, so... It's all about godliness, church. So verse 4, he goes on, 1 Timothy 6. He is conceited and understands nothing. Now, now Paul just starts digging. Says, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between who? Between the people they still are. Look at it. Between men of depraved minds. Do you know who we are as Christians? Those who have been renewed in our mind. Do we need to be renewed every day? Make no mistake. We need to be renewed every day of our lives. I, that, that's not an issue here. But these people are perpetually stuck in those depraved minds. And they're deprived of the truth. Wow, what a line there. Believe me, this list can go on and on who these people are. This is no doubt why when we talk about church discipline, there is a marked difference between someone caught in sin. How many of you sin? Raise all your hands or I'm going to come to you and call you a liar in front of the whole... No, I won't. I wouldn't do that, but it'd be fun. Anyway, so the point is we're sinners, okay? But listen, if we are caught in a sin, how are we supposed to handle that? As a brother, we are to restore them. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? And it doesn't matter what the sin is. Read the Bible. David was a murderer and an adulterer. I praise God that he's a restorer. Amen? Okay? I'm, I'm not saying he'll restore you, so go sin. That's not, don't hear me on that, right? What I am saying is that God is a restorer. So when our brother or sister is caught in sin, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to restore them. But what's the marked difference between a divisive person? Paul says, turn them away and have nothing to do with them and keep an eye on them. What did Titus tell us? Warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing to do with them. You go, Nathan, that's not loving. Ah, you're looking at it from the wrong angle. Who are we being loving to? Do you let a wolf into the sheep pack and call that loving? No, you cast them out because you're loving. There's only one way to view this church. You cast them out so as to be loving. 
So this list could go on and on. Last thing on this point, though, is back to verse number three. I said that these people espouse doctrines that cause people to stumble. Do you remember what Jesus says about these kinds of people? Ones who cause little ones to stumble? Okay, brace yourself. Those were Paul's words. Maybe he's a meanie, right? Let's deal with hippie Jesus. Let's deal with what Jesus says because he's all love all the time according to the 21st century. Here's Jesus' words. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and drown in the depths of the sea. (laughs) Oh, it makes me so happy. It just, that's amazing. Why? Because it absolutely smacks the current culture in the mouth with the nonsense they espouse about Jesus. Jesus is not a bigot or a homophobe. Jesus is not trying to kill the world. Jesus is trying to redeem it. And he, unlike us at times, is willing to always speak the truth in love. This is who we have to be, church. So we know who these people are. But before we go back to Romans, I want us to consider two very serious questions. Number one, how important is God's view of unity? And number two, how does God see division or those who cause division? We know who the people are, but how does God see them? That's what I'm getting at here. Psalm 133.1, just write it down. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. But it's verses 2 and 3 that answer the question. How good and pleasing is it, psalmist? So tell us, how good and pleasing is it? He goes on and he says, It is as good and pleasing as Aaron being anointed as priest and the dew, the majesty, the amazing thing that happened on Mount Hermon when God declared the blessing life forever. If you want to know how serious God views unity, he thinks it is as good and as pleasing as the priesthood, which all of us are a part of now, and eternal life. That's a, that's, those are high standards. That's good company to be keeping. That's how God sees unity, and we need to fight for unity. Number two, how does God see division or those who cause division? Write this one down too, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. That's a strong word, Solomon. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. Right? There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, I want you to listen to the first six and then see that God lumps division in with these. Haughty eyes. That's a proud person. Okay? A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a murderer, wow. A heart that devises wicked plans, a schemer. Feet that run rapidly to evil, so one who just loves doing evil. A false witness who utters lies, so somebody who lies about another brother because they want their way. A false witness who utters lies, and with all those six, the one who spreads strife among brothers. Gulp. God hates those things and considers them an abomination. So we know what God thinks of unity, and we also know what God thinks of division. So back to Romans 16. Now I urge you, I think we have a better understanding of how important this urging was, right? Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. 
and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Let's take a a really important turn towards maturity. Notice it's the unsuspecting that are targeted here. False teachers, heretics, those who like to divide are just like what we would say in our modern world. They're just like bullies and just like abusers. They pick on the weak. That's what they do. They prey on the weak. But knowing this helps us to understand not only the Christian value of maturity, but one of the most important reasons behind it. And that reason is so we need to be mature so that we won't be duped by these liars, by these cheaters, by these thieves, by these dissenters. Why? Who are they preying on, church? They're preying on those who are unsuspecting. What should we be? Vigilant Christians. We should know God's word. We should grow up. We should learn what we need to learn so that we can understand God's word. The Corinthians were not these people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, Paul writes to them, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but what? But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able. Poor guys. But what was the problem? Well, we didn't have enough information. No, 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 no. Paul planted this church. Paul has been intimately associated with their growth. They just choose to do wrong. They choose to not listen. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. How does Paul know that they're still fleshly? Look at what he says next. He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Divisive people are the problem. And divisive people can prey on the innocent. And sadly, the innocent can then become divisive too. Do you see this, church? It's it's powerful. Paul goes on a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians. He says, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. Uh, He goes on, he says, Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Okay? In your thinking, you need to grow up. You need to be mature. The problem with immaturity, uh, the problems with immaturity are multifaceted, but our, our context says that the problem with immaturity is that it makes for an easily divided people. We've got to be super careful on this. This was the problem in the Old Testament too. In Jeremiah's day, God's people were uh, an absolute mess. I I encourage you to study the book of Jeremiah. It's very powerful. But in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, it says, uh, For my people are foolish. They know me not. Favorite line in the Bible. They are stupid children and have no understanding. (laughs) The Bible says stupid. Okay. And have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil. What are they plotting and scheming to do? Evil. They're shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they do not know. Wow. If you know any of the history of Israel, then you know that while Jeremiah and his contemporaries were preaching uh, God's truth and calling Israel and Judah to repentance, false shepherds had crept in and they were declaring, this was their message. Oh, God's not that serious. Peace, peace be upon you. 
safety. It's going to be okay. It's all going to be fine. Don't you worry about this. Even while these people are living in sinful rebellion. Church, hear me clearly. This is exactly what's happening in the church today. The church at large looks no different from the rest of the world. And that's a, that's a pity. But what do we do? We surround ourselves with teachers that tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Not so much here, sorry. We surround ourselves with teachers who tell us what our itching ears want to hear. And here's what happens. People tell us while we're living in abject sin, while we're living in utter sinful wickedness, we hear teachers say, hey, we're all just striving. We're all going to get there. And nobody's ever trying to get anywhere. This is not what the Bible says. And I, I've said this a thousand times, church, but in the eight years that we have been here in planting this church, I can't count how many times I've had somebody come to me affording really awesome criticism and saying, I think, Nathan, you take this too seriously. I can't tell you how many times I've heard those, that criticism. First of all, I'm not going to stop taking it that seriously. And second of all, there's nothing to take more serious than eternity. Amen? Amen. Do you hear me? Our holiness, our righteousness, our life lived pleasing to the God who made us? There's nothing more important than this church. So what we should be as Christians is humble enough to say, man, fellow Christian, I've got some sin in my life and it has to go because I'm not being pleasing to my father. We need to weep tears of, of repentance and tears of pain before our creator and say, God, I want to be more like you every single day. The church doesn't need a bigger sound system, cooler lights, or a more attractional model. It needs holy people. Guess what? Guess what'll happen if we're living this way? No guarantee of success. Well, crap, right? No, no guarantee of success. Listen to me, church. No, no guarantee of success. We might be exactly like Jeremiah, and that is we die not having received all the promises, but we're awaiting the right promises which are coming. Amen? Amen? This is a big, 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 big deal, church. Jeremiah was living according to God's standard, and they hated him. They locked him up in the stocks. I got a sign-up sheet in the lobby. Stock duty, right? Okay, we can all do this, okay? Back to Romans 16, and I'll wrap it up. For the report of your obedience has reached all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. Paul is proud of these people, right? And their obedience. But he is concerned about their maturity. Not because he thinks they're doing something wrong, but he wants them to be wise. But I want you to be wise in what is good, specifically how to deal with divisive people. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I just want to ask a quick question. Who crushes the devil? God, not you. Don't try it. He will kick your booty. Do I, do I think that God has given us all authority? Do I think he's given us power? Absolutely. But the Bible absolutely never tells you to wage war against the devil. The Bible tells you resist the devil. You know how you resist the devil? When the devil lies to you and says, is that what God really said? 
you respond to him and say, as, as a matter of fact, this is what God said. Okay, there you go. That's how you resist the devil. Picking a fight with the devil doesn't go very well. Even angels in the New Testament said, it says of angels, that they did not rebuke Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, show of hands, how many of you are stronger than angels? In a sense, maybe. <laughs> in a sense, but I ain't no Gabriel. I ain't no Gabriel, so I'm not, I'm not wading into that. But here's the promise that God gives. The hope of the Christians is that the God of peace is going to crush that old serpent. Amen? What, what would we have to worry about? Nothing. We don't worry about nothing. It's such an amazing idea. So clearly we have steps to take, but God is the crusher of the devil. We have steps to take. What are those steps? We should reject the factious man, and we should keep an eye on him. And then we should grow to maturity. We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our goal uh, is to preserve unity among those which are flesh and blood, uh, those who belong to Jesus Christ. We are to turn away from people who cause dissension, keep an eye on them, and grow into maturity. So I told you that I would, I would share with you at the, at the very end this issue on how we're not contradicting God's word. There are some who look at... Um, some who look at love and think, you can't, you can't do this. Love in our culture has been redefined. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast. And it keeps rattling down this idea. And one of those things in that list is that love does not celebrate in unrighteousness. I've preached on this a thousand times if I've done it once. Love does not celebrate in unrighteousness. The modern church or the modern world and even some in the church have, um, have changed that definition. And so what the, what the world would tell you is that love is, they will still use the same vocabulary we use, but their dictionary changes and they'll say something like, love is accepting the sinner and the sin and not judging. That's their grand ethic, okay? Accept the sinner, accept the sin, and, and, and do all this, and, and don't judge anybody. You know that that's not what the Bible says, right? This utter absurdity, okay? What the Bible does tell us to do is be humble. What the Bible does tell us to do is to, is to check a person before we go passing any kind of uh, verdict, if you will, on them. But when it comes to divisive people, the Bible does not tell us to enter into church discipline. Church discipline says, go to them one-on-one. -on -one. This is just an example of church discipline. But church discipline says, go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Then go to them with another brother. See, it implies brotherhood. Go to them with another brother. Then take it before the church. After that, have nothing to do with them. But what does the scripture say about those people? But don't treat them as an unbeliever. You are to treat them rightly. You are to, you are to uh, hope for restoration, okay? The issue with the divisive person says, warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing to do with them. This is not the same as church discipline. As a matter of fact, there's not even three steps in it. It's just two steps and done, okay? It is not contrary to love, as I shared with the whole illustration of the wolf in the sheep's pen. This is love to remove this kind of person. Why? Because God says that this is, this is an abominable person. This is a person that is, he does not like, okay? They're not even a child of God. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing that I would just want you to, uh, to know quickly is that uh, sound doctrine 
uh, is a very vital thing. I know what we say. I know churches across the United States and churches across the world say, we've been arguing about certain things for thousands of years. Who are we to say what is true? Um, uh, Jesus says who, we're say, who we are to say what is true. Jesus says. The Apostle Paul tells us that they're speaking contrary doctrine. That means you can know what is sound and what is contrary, what is orthodox and what is unorthodox. Please, church, don't cede the argument to the enemy and to the world by saying, well, you know what, that sounds like a reasonable argument. I'll just throw my hands in the air and we'll never discuss anything. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. We have a serious battle on our hands, amen? It's the battle for the lives of humanity. It's for the people that God came to redeem. We have a battle on our hands, and we need to take it seriously, which means we need to look at people square in the eye and say there's one way to the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. We need to say that Jesus, uh, uh, according to the Scripture, uh, of first importance was buried According to the scriptures, he was, he was buried and on the third day he was crucified for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and on the third day he rose in bodily form. How do you think they found out his wounds were in his hands? That's not a spiritual resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection. He rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Don't lose ground on these things. Don't lose ground on these things. And then doctrine which pertains to godliness. Don't lose ground, church, on these things. Don't listen to the world and say, well, you know, I think I was made this way or that. No, 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 no. God has defined what he says is right and what is wrong. Should we just hate people and say you're going to hell? No. We should love them by telling them the truth. And then we should try to walk with them to see them in new life. Amen? So listen, uh, I don't say this because I think you're doing something wrong. I just want you to be wise in what is good. And I want you to be innocent of what is evil, church. Amen? Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.